Welcome to Wealth of Knowledge from U.S. News and World Report. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show, we welcome real estate expert Elise Glink to talk about how to begin shopping for your first home. Elise is an award-winning television and radio personality, a communications and media strategist, and the founder of four Chicago-based companies, including Best Money Moves, a mobile-first financial wellness solution that employers provide to employees to help them manage and dial down financial stress. She is also a nationally syndicated real estate and personal finance columnist, a top blogger for CBSNews.com and Yahoo, the best-selling author of 14 books, including 100 Questions Every First-Time Home Buyer Should Ask, and publisher of ThinkGlink.com. Elise, thanks for joining us. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. And co-hosting with me this week is U.S. News real estate editor Devin Thorsby. Devin takes her experience from having worked on the research side of the real estate industry and helps consumers navigate just about anything having to do with their home, from the home buying process or working through a landlord-tenant dispute to prepping for their first DIY home improvement project. Thanks for coming on, Devin. Happy to be here. Elise, we're going to use your book, 100 Questions Every First-Time Home Buyer Should Ask, to guide our conversation and I, I must say, it's so comprehensive. It's so well laid out. You, t- you have a hundred questions, and you <laughs> tackle everything that needs to be. Exactly. Uh, that needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Technically, there are more than a hundred <laughs> questions, but don't tell anybody that. My publisher <laughs> bought a hundred questions, and that was it. And uh, and this is a fourth, the fourth edition of this book. You published the first edition in 1994, almost 25 years ago. So, what was the impetus for needing to get this guide written back then? You know, it was interesting. So as a real estate reporter and syndicated columnist, it was clear to me that there were questions that everybody should be asking and they weren't. And so at the time, I was doing some freelance writing for the Chicago Tribune's real estate sections. And my editor said, sure, I'll publish top 10 questions first-time homebuyers should ask. So I went out started interviewing agents. My area of expertise is over-interviewing everybody. So I quickly had like 40 questions. So being the enterprising young reporter, I went back to my my editor and I said, how about a four-part series? And he said, how about you pick 10? (laughs) So I thought, I have now 30 extra questions. How hard could it be to get to 100? And then I uh, I was like, I always wanted to write a book. Maybe I'll just write this as a book. And then fortuitously, I met an agent who had um, just through another writer, and she's been my career-long agent. We've, we've, she sold all of my books, uh, and she said, you know, I do think that's a book. Let's see if we can get somebody interested in publishing it, and that's how that book was born. And how has the book evolved to meet today's home-buying challenges? What has been, what has been some things that have changed uh, in this 25 years from the first edition to the fourth? You know, it's funny. I was quite reflective on in when I was writing the preface and the introduction to this book because, you know, it, it was 25 years ago that in 1993 that I was writing it. You know, you write it a year in advance. It's not like today's publishing where, you know, you write it in the morning and it's published by mid-morning. But, you know, back then it took a full year to write a book. And so I was in the spring of 2020, uh, scary, 1993, And I was writing the preface and I was, you know, and I did a lot of reflection when I was in the spring of this, you know, 2018, getting this ready to go. And it was, um, it's interesting how there was no internet 25 years ago, right? There was none. Um, It just didn't function the way that things function. In fact, I 
got an email address for AOL. The last thing I did before this book went to press, and I was number 100,000 person in the world to have an AOL address. And I got that in 1993, just before we went to press. So today, everything is driven by technology with real estate, right? It can take you as little as about 10 seconds to get a loan, you know, through through Quicken Rocket Mortgage. They say it's eight minutes. It's really about eight seconds, which either one is too fast for most people. And then, you know, you're going to shop online and see so much detail about this. I mean, you know, most people who are listening to this probably don't even realize, but 25 years ago, if you wanted to get information about a house for sale, you had to go to an agent. And the agent had a huge, fat, telephone-like book. There aren't telephone books anymore, but, but they were large, and they were like 500 pages. And you had to sit in their office to go through these this static black and white phone book of listings, and there was very little information. You couldn't take it out of the agent's office, and it only came out once every two weeks. That was as, as updated as it was. And today we have incredible amounts of information, video, 360. If you don't have a million color photos on Zillow, what was Zillow back then? That was a brainchild. Um, there's just so much that's different, but technology is really driving it and has changed the way I think millennials are shopping for homes. And millennials, by the same token, have changed the way that real estate agents and brokers respond to them. And so you've... Uh... You address some of these, obviously, these changes in, in the earlier chapters of the book. And the, the first chapter is questions you must answer before buying your first home. And I, I want to run through uh, at least some, maybe the majority of these, because there's, I mean, you, you go really from point A to point, you know, to Z of, of what you need to tackle before you buy. Uh, so I want to go through the, I want to go through the first two that, that you have. And that's A. <laughs> The first question you need to, to answer, should I rent or should I buy? I mean, that's sort of going to dictate the whole experience for you if, if you don't go one way or the other. And then I find it really interesting, especially now, this question of should I buy with someone or on my own? Uh, I, I think as people are getting married later and later, the question of buying with a partner is now much more common. Uh, and so are there additional risks associated with that and what sort of guidance you have for that? So the average age of buying a first home, when I first started this book, was, you know, the first edition was about 26. Today it's almost 34. And that's a seven-year time shift. And I think millennials will recognize that sort of everything in their lives has been time shifted, especially if you live in cities. There was a, a wonderful piece in the New York Times of research not that long ago that looked at, you know, at what age people in cities buy their first home, get married, partner up. Uh, and versus people who live in rural America. And it was really quite a big difference. So if you live in, in urban America, you know, you're in your mid-30s before you're getting married, you're buying your first house and all the rest. If you're in rural America, you may still be in your <laughs> early 30s if you're buying a first house simply due to student debt and other things. Um, but I think this question of whether you should rent or buy is is really important for millennials because they have student loan debt. They've got credit card debt. They're in jobs in the beginning that maybe don't pay as much as they, they need them to to cover all those expenses and save for a down payment. And so for a lot of millennials who watched their parents struggle terribly 10 years ago in the Great Recession, coming of age in a time of insecurity, financial insecurity and instability, has had a profound and long-lasting result in that it's also helped push out this idea that maybe you don't need to be a part of the ownership society. You don't need to own a car. You don't need to own a home. You can, um, you know, share 
the things that you need today, you don't even need to buy a prom dress. You don't need to buy a wedding dress. You don't need fancy clothes. You can rent what you want, share what you need, and somehow get by without making that big investment. But I would argue that millennials are thinking about it in the wrong way. They're thinking about it short term. I want them to think about it long term. And long term, people who own homes are far wealthier than people who don't. And uh, another question you uh, speak to, how should I think about my home buying time horizon? Um, I'm, I'm hoping you can speak a little bit too, and I feel like this is one of those things that a lot of people I come into contact with have trouble figuring out kind of what kind of home shopper they are. They think that they'll be one of those people that takes a year and a half to shop for a home, um, and it turns out they're not. <laughs> so I guess uh, when it comes to making sure that they they don't make a timing mistake, what do you recommend? Making sure that they're not paying you know that lease and mortgage at the same time. Yeah, there's something great about paying rent and a mortgage at the same time, right? Um, and why is it that people sign your leases and then decide they want to go own a house? <laughs> so what I try to do in the book is I try to encourage people to think you know, about their lives. If they're in their 20s, think about it at a couple of years at a time. And why I go back to this idea of should you, should you rent or should you buy? Because you need some financial stability. You need some location stability. You need partnership stability to buy the right house that you can actually stay in. And by house, it's my catch-all. I might say home. I might say house. I might say condo. I mean abode, right? Place that you're actually going to own whatever it looks like. Tiny house, big house, whatever. Um, you know, but people who, who aren't able to look out five to seven to even 10 years in their lives, which is hard. I, admittedly, when you're 25, thinking about where you're going to be at 30 or 35, that's super hard, and I appreciate it. But buying a house is not like even buying a car, right? It's not like, you know, jumping out of plane and going off to Guatemala for the weekend. This is really a long-term commitment, and especially in a period of time where we've had such a another bubble of housing price increases that there is concern about a pullback. There's interest rate sensitivity where you're in your 20s, you may not realize that home prices tend to go down as interest rates go up. You haven't seen that happen yet, and you haven't experienced it as a homeowner, and it's quite a bit different. So all of these things together, if you can't look out five years and tell me you like where you live and you think you're going to be there, you're in a good job, you're going to stay there and earn at least as much as you are earning right now for the next five to seven years. You're with the person you want to be with or the animals you choose to have, <laughs> right? Because dogs take, this is millennials buy houses now because their dogs need a yard. So um, let alone the school district, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, if you can't tell me that you, you know, have a stable job, you know, know who your partners or animals are going to be, know your location, where that's going to be, and are, are able to easily access the things that you want to access in your life, then you're probably not ready to buy. You should probably rent and then plan out for two to five years what it's going to take to get you to buy a house because then you don't end up spending money on rent and a mortgage at the same time. And I've got some specific strategies in the book to help you negotiate with your landlord, you know, when you're six months out and what to do when you're just not quite sure when you're going to land that perfect house. As these shoppers get closer and closer to realizing they're ready to, to go look for a house or to go buy a house, or sometimes when they're doing it just for fun and they look at million dollar properties because that seems <laughs> more fun to do. Everybody goes online. I mean, you talk, as we already discussed, you know, just a few minutes ago, 
there's the Redfins, there's the Zillows, there's Trulia, there's HomeFinder. There's so many different sites. I, f I feel people just sort of have their favorite and use that one. Do you recommend certain sites for certain things? Do some sites do some things better than others? So first of all, it may feel like everybody picks their one favorite site, but the research shows that people use seven to 10 different real estate websites at any one time. And they use them for different purposes. Uh, Zillow, and you know how this is true, I'll tell you how you know, because Zillow claims to have 100 plus million people come to their website every single month. The total number of existing homes that will be sold this year is somewhere around 5 million, with maybe 500,000, maybe 600,000 new homes. So you're talking about 5.6 million abodes that are going to sell this year. And 100 million people a month, right? The numbers are really off. So <laughs> people go, they go often, they go to many, many different websites. They are looking for different kinds of information. And behind the scenes, there's a lot of different information that feeds into these websites. There are different deals that have been struck between the National Association of Realtors, the individual state and local realtor associations, and the actual websites. And different websites carry different kinds of information. And so I think when people go from site to site to site, they start seeing and noticing that there are different homes for sale on different sites. Different information is available. The sites update at different speeds. So I think that Zillow is great if you're going to go to Zillow or Trulia, both of those owned by the same company, and you want to get a sense of, you know, what homes have sold for. They, they tend to do a good job of calling up past sales, which is great. Um, you can see interior pictures site may not be updated as quickly, and they're really in the business of lead generation. And by that, I mean they want to sell your data to credit companies, credit monitoring companies, lenders, brokers, whoever will pay them for a little bit of that real estate on their page. That's what they're looking for. The individual broker websites are good because you can get in deep and you, know, you start to a conversation with the broker who's actually representing that. There's pluses and minuses there too, right? But you know, those provide you with different information and you may see 360 images or you may see more video on those sites. So it really depends on, on how, you know, how you go about the process and how you go about identifying what neighborhoods are really your neighborhoods of choice, whether it's because of price or location or um, accessibility to amenities or connections to family and friends who already live there or because you're taking a new job or school district or whatever it is that is interesting to you about that neighborhood. Do you think with all this information being available in, you know, on so many different sites, is there still a deal to be had? Can people still find that hidden gem that nobody knows about? It's you know, behind the warehouse that nobody's thought to go and it's the perfect place that looks great. And Here's the thing about real estate, right? It's so personal right? Everybody, realtors talk about location, location, location. And in the book, that's actually one of my questions. Like, I don't know what number, but what does location, location, location really mean? And there, you know, in my mind, it's, it's not just about what state you live in or even what city or what part of the neighbor, you know, neighborhood that you live in in a city or what part of that neighborhood. It's really not even just about your block. It's about where you are on that block. And in some areas, the, the corner is the premier location, and some it's the middle of the block. But the same thing is true when you're looking for your personal house, right? And you're looking for your deal. It's a deal for you because of who you are. 
not because some investor is going to look at it and think that's a deal. So the deals for the investors are going to be different. They're going to look for their own different locations, their own metrics, their own cap table, whatever they use to decide that's a good investment or not. But you as a buyer, you're different from everybody else that's out there, you and your partner who's buying with you. And so, yes, there are deals to be had, even in a higher interest rate environment, even if um, prices have been skyrocketing, there are deals to be had. But to find them, you have to educate yourself. You can't believe everything you see on the web. You need a third-party source. You need several third-party sources. You need to interview agents. You need to actually take some time to do this right. And one of the mistakes that I see millennials in particular making is they are so much more likely to go to their friends rather than go to an expert for advice. I'm sorry, I, I, get, I get friends, right? I have two children who are you know, Gen Z and millennial, so I get that, right? But they haven't been doing this for 25 or 30 years. Why wouldn't you talk to somebody who's as smart in the industry that, that, uh, that you want to be in to help you find those deals rather than go to your friends and say, hey, look, what do you think of this house? Well, it's nice that they like it. Maybe they'll want to hang out and have dinner with you, but they're not going to pay the mortgage. They're not going to have to take care of it. They're not going to buy insurance for it, and they're not going to be there you know, to help calm you down when you're in the middle of a bidding war for it. So that's how you find a deal. That's so funny. We had uh, uh, Ryan Surhant on a few weeks ago from Million Dollar Listing New York. And, and we sort of brought up this question again about whether you should work with a family member or a friend. And he, he sort of said, if they're good, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, maybe maybe shop around and, and, and use somebody that you're going to have more of a professional relationship with. But. Wait, I just have to say, my mother has been, was until she just retired this year. She's now eighty, going to be 81. She is 81. My mother was one of the top brokers in Chicago for decades. And people would always say to me, well, who do you recommend that we use? And I said, you know, family relationship. I can only recommend that you use my mother and my husband, Sam, as your attorney, because Sam and I write this syndicated column together now. And he's a fantastic real estate attorney. I was like, but I can't recommend anybody else to you, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I do recommend that even if you are thinking about using my mother or my husband, that you talk to three or four or five different real estate agents. There is a real way to go find a great agent for you, right? This is like a short-term marriage. You need somebody who really knows your neighborhood inside and out. Like my mother's a great agent, but if you're looking out in Hoffman Estates and the outskirts of Chicago, she would be the worst person in the world for you because she knows the Gold Coast. If you want the Gold Coast, she's your woman. But you know, neighborhood suburbs, neighborhoods in the suburbs, school districts, you can't just hire anybody to represent you. And the problem with hiring an agent who's a family friend or somebody your mother really loves or somebody who's a personal friend of your own age is A, they may not have the right experience or the location experience. You may also be, you may also feel awkward about telling them that you don't like what they're bringing you or that you feel like they're not listening to you. And so all those manners that you were probably taught as a child, you know, you, you start working with somebody who's 25 years your senior and they're your family friend. And if things go sour, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna suck it up and buy the house anyway? No, that's a bad idea. Are you just gonna listen to them even if they're bringing you to the wrong places? No, you don't wanna make the single biggest purchase of your life, you know, and buy it because you feel pressured to buy it. So. You really need to interview 
different agents from different houses who work all within the price range you're interested in and the, have the average age of their clients as your age so that you know that they've got the right experience to help get you to the place you need to be to buy that house. Yeah. And I, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but I do know it's a huge majority of people, even if it's not a family member or a friend, they hire the real estate agent that they spoke with first and they don't even go looking for a second right. person to speak with or interviewing others. And I really think that people should shift kind of the mindset to be that you're interviewing these people to hire them for a job, not just uh, to help you find that house because it is a job. You're hiring them. They will be getting paid eventually. Um so yeah. No, absolutely. They need you need to see their references, meet their references, call them. You need to see a, a resume from them. You should, you know, talk to other brokers and see if the uh, when you interview other brokers, oh, do you know so and so from here? Do you know so and so from here? Have you worked with them? Do they have a good reputation? You don't have to say why, but it's it's really helpful. And the reason that people hold open houses for sellers is not because they ever sell the houses there. Typically, that doesn't happen. They do get lots of customers and clients in the door who are looking in the neighborhood and they're like, oh, do you like this house? Are you represented by anybody? And then that's how they get a lot of new customers. And so we can have another discussion about how that doesn't serve sellers well. But <laughs> if, you're, if you are a buyer, you know, this is a great way for you to go and number one, I mean, you're going to kill a whole bunch of birds with one stone. But you're going to go see houses in the neighborhood that are hopefully similar to yours that look, you know, like the way the house that you would want to buy is. Um, and then you're going to meet the agents and get a chance to see how they show a house for sale and see how they interact with pr prospective buyers and get a sense if you like them or not. And if you want to invite them for a, a further chat uh, and, and start that process of hiring. Uh, and it's a, and then you go back and you look online to one of your favorite websites where you can see how they're rated and what they have to say about the real estate market and are they thought leaders and have they been in the industry for a long time and, you know, how do they interact? How do they present themselves? Oh, there's so much information out there that if you just pick the first person you talk to, you're bound to make a mistake. Uh, another question you have um, in that, that fast pass in chapter one uh, the, the last question, how do I know I found the right home for me? Um, I know I loved your story in the book that talks about how you and your husband found your home. I guess, could you speak a little bit to that and kind of how um, people can interpret that feeling when they know that a home is right for them, kind of both the data matches up along with the feelings? So I think that people think that they can just go see like three houses and pick one. And I think that's because HGTV has three houses in every show, yep. right? There's the totally wrong house. Then there's the possibly wrong house. And then, ah, here's the right house, right? So You need it, to be able to fit 10 minutes, you know, 10 minutes times three, and then you get to your half an hour show, and then you get to something else. Yeah. I know, right? It really sets up unrealistic expectations. So... Just to set the record straight, and I go into this ad nauseum in the book, I looked at over 125 houses before we bought the house we live in now. And I wasn't a real estate you know, expert the way I am today, but I, I learned as I went along and we changed suburbs and neighborhoods half a dozen times. We kept moving further out to houses we could afford, neighborhoods that were more affordable. I wanted more space. I figured if I was, I was a city kid, I had grown up in the city, and I figured if I was going to leave the city to go move to the suburbs, 
I should have some garden. Like I wanted a garden. I wanted to be able to plant corn, as I said to my husband. He's like, how many acres are we buying? And I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be a lot of corn. It turns out that when you plant corn in the suburbs, it gets eaten. So, but I didn't know that then. I learned that, uh, another one of those lessons. But anyway, I, you know, it's different for everybody. But for us, first we had to each agree on what we wanted, right? And we actually created these wish lists that I talk about and and the reality checks, and then we came together and we kind of merged our lists. And it was interesting to see what it was at the top of Sam's list versus my list. You know, I had things like, I was gonna work from home. I worked from home for, I wanna say 20 years. So I wanted space for an office and I wanted a working fireplace so I could write stories by the fire. It's not a very romantic to me. I needed a great kitchen, I love to cook. Um, you know, we, we didn't, you know, I wanted a yard so I could plant flowers and, oh, maybe we'd have some kids and they'd run around. And Sam wanted, because he was still working for a big law firm downtown at the time, wanted to be walking distance to a train station. Having these conversations is hard. And, you know, how do you know when when it's right? When you go into a house, if you've looked at a, a ton, and you realize that as you're mentally clicking through your wish list and reality checklist, that you've you're getting all your big things and you look around in it and it pleases you i mean you have to look past decorating right because they're taking all their stuff with you with them but you, you know f- for most people when you're hitting all those things in your list as you're walking around if you've seen 10 houses 20 houses 30 houses something starts to click for you and then you sit down on the couch in the living room and all of a sudden you can imagine your own possessions in this house around you that's when you know that feeling that you've settled in this is a place that you can set down roots it, it it's peaceful and you just realize that you're there and that's um i think for most people something that's hard to imagine and then when it happens they're like oh yeah got it <laughs> and i think it's also important to kind of know that it's okay if it takes a long time like like you said you toured more than 100 houses beforehand Um, I know I've got some friends looking at houses right now, and I think the biggest obstacle that they're coming up against is they walk away from a house that they liked, checked most of their boxes, but either it just, you know, didn't have the things they really needed or wanted, or it, you know, another offer comes in and it sells. And then it's, they have like the non-buyer's remorse where suddenly that house was perfect and no, it wasn't perfect. You did not like it. Remember that. Um, but then they're they're wishing and they feel like they missed it and it really stops them up, I think, and, and makes them feel like uh, they're, they're not going to find that house um, and kind of pushing on is tough. Does it make you feel better to know that I think there is no perfect house? Like, I think there's no one perfect house. I mm-hmm. think that there are any number of houses that would work for most people. I think that you can turn, as we've seen through yet another spate of HGTV shows, you can make a house look like pretty much anything you want to. The one thing that's really hard to do is pick up a house and move it somewhere else. Although I actually did a story for WGN-TV, oh, many moons ago, where one of our neighbor's houses was actually built in Wisconsin. We went to Wisconsin to see it and watched it being moved right here uh, to our hometown and watched it being put together. So you can even do that. But I think that, you know, what has to happen, the things you can't change, you have to focus on first, right? 
distance to transportation, uh, to work, commute, transportation, house of worship, what kind of school districts are there, what kind of amenities, after school activities, who lives in the neighborhood, walking the streets of it, are you going to have the shopping you need for everyday stuff, or do you have to drive 20 minutes just to get a gallon of milk? That kind of daily lifestyle is the stuff that I wish most people would focus on, and a little bit less about how cute the house is outside, because even if it's not perfect today, it will turn into a perfect house for you at this point in time in your life during the years that you live there. And, you know, we've done a disservice in the real estate industry. I say we because, you know, I, I'll own my whatever part of this I have. If I've made this, it sound like it's too easy and that this can be accomplished in a day. But it can't be. Just the way that, you know, I was going to say that as perfect SAT scores are elusive to almost all, this idea that you can find the house in one day and buy it and it's the house. If you can get away from the house to something that's, you know, great for you for the next five to ten years and maybe longer, I think it's easier to accept a house that isn't, you know, the ultimate house or the forever house as I've written about. And I mean, you touch on this as well, not just outside the house, but inside when you go to see a bunch of places and maybe the place is in the perfect location for you and it checks off a lot of boxes and then, you know, somebody looking at it, the paint is the wrong color and so therefore that house is not good for them or they don't like the furniture or they, you know, they see an object that seems integral to the structure and they don't like it and so now what are they going to do? They have to find something else without sort of this ability to restructure it uh, and make it look like what you want. So go see houses. That's what we're telling you. Be patient and go see as much as you can. Paint is really silly, right? I had a friend who once painted his kitchen yellow. The whole thing is a surprise for his wife because she liked yellow. And she came home and she went, wrong yellow. And <laughs> he's like, hey, no problem. You know, for another 100 bucks, I can get four more gallons of paint and do it again. Like, paint is just the easiest thing in the world to fix. And, and one of the things that we're seeing now in technology is the ability, when you look online at houses, you have to really go see it. So we're seeing a lot of millennials go, oh, I could just believe everything I see, and I'm going to go buy this house. I saw it online. I saw it in video. I saw this. Okay, well, guess what? Now there's technology that changes the color of kitchen cabinets and changes the color of walls, removes the furniture and puts like style furniture in, can change the hardwood floors to a carpet or carpet to hardwood floors. If you don't actually go see the house itself, you will be making a mistake because there's so many ways, I hate to use fake news and bring it up here, but when it comes to this kind of stuff, things can be faked. Images can be faked. Pictures and video can be faked. And you're, you, again, are spending the single biggest amount of money you are going to spend ever in your life until you buy the next house. So whether that's 200000 or 300000 or 500000 or if you live in San Francisco, my apologies, $1.2 for your average house, you have to get up off your chair from out from in front of your screen or your phone, and you have to go see the house. That's how you avoid making a mistake. And, you know, just firsthand... We have some friends who lived um, in a house for 34 years in the suburbs of Chicago. We helped them move. They're in their 80s. And they, when I actually, we helped them do everything that they needed to do to get their house ready to go. And then we saw the pictures online, and the agent had changed the kitchen cabinets, which were dark wood, to white. We actually thought they had painted the cabinets like when we weren't looking. And we went there, we're like, oh, no, your cabinets are still dark wood. And you realize that 
that that sort of stuff is so good that if you only saw this online, you would think that they're cab- you'd walk into the kitchen and, and absolutely fall off your feet. You're like, you'd fall down going, where are my white cabinets? Because it looked like a brand new kitchen in this, you know, this imaging that they're able to do now. So get off, get off your duff. <laughs> Great. And then I guess uh, going from there. So you've seen the house once. Um, it maybe it checks off all the boxes so far. You're still not sure. How how do you know when it's uh, time for a second or third showing of the house? Oh well, you know if you're in a market that's moving pretty quickly, you'll you'll know pretty much, you know, the next day or that night or once you've seen everything and you've sorted through it. So when you go to see you go on showings with your agent, typically your agent will want to make the most of your time, and so he or she will set up. A series of different showings at different properties and at the end of that day which will be long and you'll be tired and you'll be taking your own pictures and writing on the listing sheets you know you and your spouse or partner are going to go home and you're going to talk about it and the agent's going to say what did you think of this house this house this house this what did you like what did you do not like when you find a house that you like you're going to compare it naturally to all these other houses you've seen and you may immediately want to go back like the next day or you may want to go back a week later after you've seen a whole bunch of other houses but you'll get to a place where unless you expand your price range or your location you'll probably run out of all the houses that are in your price range to be seen in the neighborhoods of choice and then you're going to have to decide do you like anything well enough to see it again and because life isn't a TV show, or do you want to <laughs> expand your horizons, look in different neighborhoods, look at different price ranges, different styles of houses? Are you open to a condo, whereas before you were only looking for single family or a townhouse instead of a single family? Once you've seen everything that's out there, you're going to decide what you want to do. But your agent may come back and say, hey, you may not be ready to do this, but this house that you said you really liked, somebody's making an offer. Do you want to go see it again? So sometimes it's force it forces your hand. At the uh, at the end of the book, I don't want to you know I don't want to ruin this last section. But yeah, you don't give it away. The mistakes. ending of, of how how hundred questions every first time homebuyer should ask actually ends. <laughs> so w- once they get to about one ten one twenty, then they'll get to the appendix. <laughs> right. Uh, and there's the top ten mistakes that first time buyers make. These are the sort of the warning signs. So I want to go over a few of them. And one of the ones at the top you have is looking at homes that you can't afford. How does one identify what they like versus what they need in a home to prevent themselves, especially in the sort of in the planning stage and the budgeting stage? Well, that actually goes, that used to be the very first question in the book. And so one of the big changes I made with this edition is I reorged how the book works because um, people need to know a lot of information quickly and then they're going to dive in. So that became the first nine or 10 questions, the fast pass. But the number one question for three versions was, what's a wish list and a reality check? And the wish list is everything you want in a house. The reality check is everything you can't live without. So you may want a, you know, five bedroom, five and a half bath house and a gourmet kitchen and a massive yard and a basketball court in the basement, which by the way, there are three houses in my block who have that now. Do you need one? Do you absolutely need one for your family of two with a dog? (laughs) Probably not. So, you know, this in the book, I talk about how you really need to make your own set of lists and your spouse or partner needs to make, you know, their own lists. And then you need to come together and combine it because you're only one family unit or one couple 
buying this property. By the way, I don't believe kids should get full say. That's just an aside. If you have children, you're buying your first house, good for you, but don't make them do this. This is, you're the parent, you're the adult, you decide, it's your money. But, you know, this idea that, that there's gonna be a tug of war because everybody, nobody really has enough money to get everything they want. So what you do is you start by focusing on what you absolutely have to have, and then you get to add things back in. And that's how you make a really smart move where you're not overbuying or spending more than you really should, and you're not underbuying, not spending quite enough, that's going to get you the five to seven years out. I, I always think of this issue where you set uh, sort of your, your monthly payment, what you can afford on a monthly basis, and then you shop and you see a bunch of places and you get excited about one that you like and the, the cost of the house seems to fit, it seems to be the right number. And then you start seeing all the other costs that are sort of added on that you didn't anticipate, the mortgage insurance, the HOA fees, the taxes, the closing costs. And suddenly this number that you had maybe, you know, $1,500 a month, for example, as a mortgage has suddenly become $1,800, $1,900 a month. And you're so far down the rabbit hole at this point that you sort of, you figure out ways to make that extra cost work. And now you've overextended yourself and, and you have a problem. So you want to, you try to prevent this as best you can, either by giving yourself space at the bottom, you know, starting at 1200 and getting reaching 1500 or, or as you say, sort of make all these, you know, list these things ahead of time so that you're as prepared as possible. I, here's a small tip. Stop looking at million dollar houses you can't afford, right? <laughs> it ruins you. Uh, you know, you were saying earlier in this podcast that you like to look at million dollar homes because it's more fun. Right. Oh, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't at all talking. Uh, oh, about not myself. you. I'm no, sorry. Of not. Why would I the ever mythical person. Right. The <laughs> mythical person. Okay. But but my point is that it is fun to look at million dollar houses. Right. I look at stuff I can't afford all the time, mostly in San Francisco with views of the Bay. But that's not. You know what I'm. If I'm using that to guide my vision as to what house I can live with, I'm going to get wrecked. It's ridiculous because I literally can't afford a $10 million house just to have a half an acre with a view of, you know, the bay. Plus, I don't live in San Francisco. You know, but people do this all the time. So they do look at homes that are a hundred or two or $300,000 more than they can afford, whatever that price point is. When you start doing that, it, it doesn't seem like you're buying much. You've, you end up feeling just bad about yourself and what you can't afford. And that's when you start stretching your budget. And that is super dangerous, especially now, especially when, you know, we could be facing a recession in another year or so, maybe even sooner. Every single day, I open up the news and another big name company has laid off or bought out or whatever, more than 5,000 workers. You know, it's 10,000 here and 15,000 here and 14,000 here and whatever. And pretty soon you're at a real number of people losing their jobs. I think that's what you have to keep in mind is, What's the backup plan? What are my financial resources? How am I going to make this work? How do I want to still live my life? Like millennials are really interested in experiences. Okay, great. But massages every week, you know, trips to the vet for your animals, you know, deciding that you're going to go to so-and-so's wedding, you know, this one over in the Barbados and this one over here in Colorado and this one over here in, you know, Europe, like all that costs real money and it takes away from what you have to spend you know, at, for this big, huge investment that you're making. And, and so I want you to be able to live your life. And so that's why in the book, I do talk a lot about this idea of what's the rest of your budget look like. 
It's actually, you know, one of the things we do a lot of with Best Money Moves, my other company, because I want people to understand that house and home is just one thing. And if all you want to do is be house rich and cash poor, you know, I'm all in. <laughs> but if you're a millennial, you probably want to do a few other things. And even if you're a Gen Z or if you're, you know, Gen X, it doesn't matter who you are, what generation you belong to. There are different priorities, financial priorities that you have to adjust for. So please don't look at homes that are a half a million dollars more than your budget. You're just going to feel bad about yourself. I promise. And even then, uh, okay, so you stretch your budget and bought that beautiful house, but then like, are you going to furnish it with Ikea furniture? Like, is it going to be this gorgeous million dollar house? And then with like a tiny little two person dining room table, um, I don't think it's, that's not going to be what you envision when you're touring it. So. Well, the te- typical homeowner spends an extra ten dollars to $15,000 once they move in. Okay, so after you've done everything and you start paying that mortgage, now you're going to spend another ten, twelve grand on carpet and on whatever. And it, it just adds up. And so the first couple of years of homeownership are pretty tough and you want to make sure you're financially ready for it. So now, Elise, as we close up, I want to take a few minutes to go over what you're doing now. Can you talk a little bit more about Best Money Moves and why did you choose to take on this? It seems like you have a lot of things on your plate, but you decided that you needed to take on this challenge as well. So can you talk about it a little bit? Sure. So I've actually spent my whole career uh, as a financial journalist trying to help people make better decisions with their money. And I was always known as kind of a service journalism you know, th- that I practiced, which was more helping people and answering questions rather than breaking stories, although I did a lot of that as well early in my career. And I just found myself gravitating, mostly out of personal interest, to this idea that people have a finite amount of money and how do you help them figure out the best way to, to spend it. And over the course of creating companies that then my second company was, I helped big companies. Uh, create huge enterprise-level products, um, you know, behind the Chinese wall, for for example, with Discover Card, that also gave people a ton of information about things that they were interested in. And so I, I had this, you know, ongoing issue of how do companies explain these complicated financial things in a way that makes sense to people, and how do people take the best advantage of it and bring that together? And I started after the Great Recession getting hired to build financial wellness products, which, surprise, surprise, were all about selling things to people who really couldn't afford them. And so I decided there had to be a better way to get people to engage on the topic of money. And so I drew on my whiteboard, I have a big whiteboard in my office, I drew on my whiteboard um, a picture of what became the stressometer, a way to have people measure their level of financial stress in the 15 major categories of spend. You know, so education and student debt or identity theft protection or healthcare costs or just managing money. How do budgets work? You know, people have different levels of stress about different categories of spend. And and so that's how we started to do it. And I said, well, how would we then deliver the information? Well, we're going to use machine learning and algorithms to do it. Of course, it's a technology platform. And that was the beginning of Best Money Moves. So now we sell it to companies because I don't want to ever sell anything to consumers. I still think they can't really afford it. Here we are in the world's best economy that it's going to be for as long as it is now. And you've got 70-something percent of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. And you have a third of U.S. children living in poverty. And you have 80-something percent of U.S. workforce registering financial stress. 
as a huge ongoing concern and a quarter of all workers are so stressed that it causes them to feel physically sick. And I feel that there's just a, you know, somebody's got to figure out a way to tap into that stress and find a way to dial it down. And I think that we have done it with the platform that we've built, the smart technology we're using, huge, vast quantities of content. And then this idea that if you focus on the the pain points that people have, and you focus on real ways to dial it down, educate them, solve what they're doing, they will feel better and lead happier lives. And for employers, there's huge ROI to them, which is why we sell to employers. My big eye-opening moment, though, this year was that it was finding out that in Canada, where they have government health care, same percentage are living paycheck to paycheck. It's almost 75% in Canada, same thing in the UK. And here we are in the world's, in our best economy that we've had in 10, 12 years. What's going to happen when the next recession hits? I want people to be prepared. The company is called Best Money Moves. The book is 100 Questions Every First Time Home Buyer Should Ask. Elise, thank you very much for, for coming on. Where can, uh, where can a listener find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Glink. I have a Facebook page. It's Elise Glink. You can go to my website, thinklink.com. I have a free weekly newsletter. You can sign up for it. It's got all kinds of great tips and tricks, no ads, just like everything else I do. And if you're a company looking to improve the financial unwellness of your employees, go to bestmoneymoves.com. We appreciate you coming on and, and offering your, your expertise. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Devin, thank, uh, thank you for coming on as well. We will see you on the next real estate episode. Where, uh, where can people find you on, on social media? Uh, you can tweet at me at Devin Thorsby. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. For more real estate-focused advice, go to realestate.usnews.com to read all of our research and advice on buying and selling a home, mortgages and financing, as well as our 2018 Best Places to Live rankings. Please subscribe to our podcast, comment on it, rate it, let us know what you think. And if you have questions you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few on the next real estate episode, sort of a mailbag scenario. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.